You know, we all understand that leading a club today has gone from being a job to being a profession. And what you heard Ray say about the numbers is truly what this job is all about. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Um, a couple of quick things, if I, if I can. Uh, firstly, it's such a pleasure to have you all here and uh, to have you all in our backyard and to be visiting with you. A couple of things I wanted to just check with first. Can somebody please explain to me the no socks deal? <laughs> Brian's got no socks. Lonnie's got no socks. Lonnie, please explain the no socks. Your feet sweat. It's hot. It's humid. Can you t walk me through this? You know how hard it is to put on a pair of socks when you're 300 pounds and can't touch them? <laughs> <laughs> good, good, uh, you forgot to pack those. Good answer. The other question that I get asked uh, when I'm down here is, you know, Mike, you, you're an old man. You're 62 years old. Why are you down in Florida? You know, I was going to retire from congressional uh, in February of this year, and then I'm not quite sure what I was going to do. Probably do a little bit of what Henry Delosia does, is travel around and kind of spread out words of wisdom, and hopefully uh, somebody would pay me for that. But uh, as luck would have it, the reason people come to Florida is to retire, and I had a board member when I told him I was moving down to Florida, where he put out a note to a whole bunch of uh, congressional members, said, you know, Mike's headed down to Florida to retire. He's going to run a little club down in, in the Keys and, you know, kind of a retirement job. Yeah. And I had the chairman of Ocean Reef Club call me up and he goes, what the hell are you telling the people at Congressional? You came down to a retirement club. This club is four times bigger than what you ran when you were at, uh, at Congressional. So I'm excited and we've had a few bo Congressional board members down here and when they come down here, the first thing they want to ask you is, Mike, any regrets? Any regrets? And my answer is yes, I have one regret. I didn't do this sooner. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to be here, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, when Beth and I were talking about this, you know, one of the things I like doing when I go to other clubs, and I spend uh, quite a bit of time traveling, and I, when I do, I travel, I, I involve the CMA and go to a lot of different clubs. I want to know things about the clubs. I want to find out what clubs are doing, and as Greg Patterson says, there are no new ideas. We steal other people's ideas. We call it our own. I like to go to other clubs and find out what other clubs are doing, take the good ideas, the nuggets that work for my club, bring them back, and then you know, execute them at the club that we're at. So to that end, when Beth and I were talking about this, we thought, well, it'd be nice, I think it would be nice, for all of you to sort of get a little bit of better perspective of Ocean Reef. I had never visited Ocean Reef until I, I came down here for the first interview. I knew Paul. Paul and I mixed in similar circles. We did a lot of the same things, and, but I'd never been here. So there are some of you that have never been here, and there's some of you that have been here but probably don't appreciate all the things that I uh, to offer here at Ocean Reef. So what we thought we'd do is we'd do a little bit about the past, a little bit about the present, and then take you through a little bit of what our strategic plan looks like going into the future. And as uh, Brian alluded to, there was a strategic plan done I uh, started in 2000 with Paul when he got here through 2015. I started in December of 2014. We now have another two, uh, 15, 20-year plan that we're working on to see where we want to be uh, moving into the future. So with that said, I'd like to uh, introduce you to Richard Weinstein. Richard is our <coughs> Vice President of uh, Membership and Marketing, and Richard is going to take us through the uh, 
the past of Ocean Reef. Richard, over to you. All right, thank you, Mike. Good morning. Right before coming to Ocean Reef Club, I worked for the largest cruise line in the world. And uh, how many of you have been on a cruise? So you get a sense. What I heard often when I was there is, wow, this is like a floating hotel. And at the cruise lines, I used to think about that and say, eh, you know, it's not really like a floating hotel. It's more like a floating city. We make our own water. We make our own power. People live here 24 hours a day. The only thing we don't have is parking problems. And when I first came to Ocean Reef Club, I looked around a little bit. I saw we were surrounded by water on three sides. I said, wow, this is like a cruise ship in a lot of ways, which means it's like a city itself. And after being here a couple months, I realized, you know what? This, this is not a city at all. It's a country. And I know that because we have a border, which is the gate, before you can come in. We make our own holidays up. We have Festival on the Green. We have Vintage Weekend. We have our own monetary system, which is the card. If you have a guest that comes in, well, that goes through immigration. You have to get a visa <laughs> to come in. Right? We have our own security as well. Uh, so it's really like a country. And thought a little bit about how did this unique way of life, which is the way we think of Ocean Reef Club and it's the way we talk about it, come about? Where did it, where did it really start? So we're going to go all the way back to about 1770. And in 1770, uh, there was a ship called the Carries Fort, and it ran aground about five miles from here, right out, uh, right out on the reef. And for the next several years, the government kept putting light ships out there to mark the reef and the storms kept blowing them away. So in 1840, they finally said, you know what? Let's build a lighthouse that'll be permanent. And that's the Carries Fort Lighthouse. And it was built by the gentleman you see in the middle <coughs> seated. His name is George Meade. George Meade, this is his first assignment. His second assignment after he built the lighthouse, does anybody know what it was? Led the Army of the Potomac and won the Battle of Gettysburg. Always comes back to the Potomac, doesn't it, Mike? So we go to uh, Ocean Reef Club. In about 1945, uh, a guy named Morris Baker, he was a developer out of Minneapolis, he was looking for just a little fishing camp that he could get together with some friends. And he heard about a piece of property that was for sale in uh, somewhere down in Florida. So they drove down. Now at the time, most of you that drove here, drove over Card Sound, came over the bridge, that wasn't here. The only way to get here was to drive all the way down US-1 into what was called Rock Harbor, and then make a left turn and a left turn and come back up a dirt road that is now 905. And as they came up this dirt road, uh, his wife had the following uh, thought. This was her quote, Alice Baker. We drove 11 miles from the main highway over a narrow, ruddy road with trees touching above in many places. Raccoons and night birds were everywhere, and we thought at the end of the world. Instead of a fishing camp, he saw crocodiles, the mangroves, and the coral rock, and had this vision of building something that would last forever. He named his vision Ocean Reef. So that was in 1945. In 1948, you see this picture here. By that time, he had started dredging the channel, didn't quite complete it, built a couple of these little buildings that were called yatels. And the yatels actually exist today. We have them in our associate housing area. Uh, well hidden from view by landscaping, but that's where some of our associates uh, will live during the season. 
There's also a, uh, we have a museum over by the Cultural Center, and there's one that's set up just as it looked back in the early 1950s. But there was a problem. He opened in 1949, he invited all his friends down, and they all broke their rudders and broke propellers trying to come in the canal, and they said, uh, sorry, we're not gonna be visiting you again for a while. And so he took two years to kind of close it down and, and redredge the canal and, and really get ready to open. So this picture, I'll just give you an idea, satellite view, 1950, the northern end of, again, Key Largo, but at the time still called Rock Harbor. And we'll come back to this slide and show you what it looked like years later. Now in 1951, he's ready to reopen, invites his friends back down, and it's much more of a success. It's becoming more of the fishing camp that he hoped to have. In 1948, there was a movie that was called Key Largo. Remember, it starred uh, Humphrey Bogart. It was actually filmed at a place that today is called the Caribbean Club. It's about 15 miles south of here in, again, Rock Harbor. In 1952, they decided, you know what, Rock Harbor's not really that great a name. Let's change the name of the town to the name of the movie, Key Largo. It was not the other way around. Ocean Reef decides, you know what, things are going well, 1955, we have a problem. Sometimes, the only thing to do is fish, and sometimes it's a little windy. So we need something else to do. So 1955, they built nine holes on the golf course. In 1956, they said, it's kind of annoying driving all the way into Key Largo and turning around and coming back up. It'd be nice if we had another way to get here other than by boat or car. So they put in the airport. 4,400 foot runway today. Now it's 1959. Lots sell for $4,700 to about $17,000. And at this time, the median price of a home in the United States is about $11,000. So just a lot here at Ocean Reef is gonna cost you about what the median price of a home is. In rooms are $18 a night. You can see the building. There's a remote somewhere, unless someone took it. There we go. Right here. So that's the inn, uh, $18 a night. The hotels that you saw earlier, $23 a night. And now we have the first of what became ultimately two 18-hole golf courses part of Ocean Reef and a third 18-hole golf course that's a private club within the Ocean Reef Club. And a round of golf is $5. Right down the road again, probably about uh, 16 miles on the ocean side in 1963, the first state park started, John Penny, first underwater state park, John Pennycamp State Park. And uh, I saw a couple pictures, people were showing me of fish they speared. So the park comes all the way to just about a mile north of Ocean Reef. And once you get outside of that to the north, then you can spearfish because all of the park is protected. It goes out about five miles. And in fact, goes out to the Carries Fort Reef which you can see if you're out fishing today, if you go stand on Buccaneer Island, you look southeast about five miles, you'll see a little lighthouse. As you get closer, it gets bigger. That's still the one that was built in 1840 that's there today and that's what this building is named after. But there's actually, not including Everglades National Park, there are seven national and state parks that are adjacent to the Ocean Reef Club. There's a National Wildlife Sanctuary, the Biscayne National Park, there's a Card Sound Lobster Sanctuary on our bayside. 
There's a Key Largo Hammock State Botanical Site, Crocodile Lake National Refuge, Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, in addition to Penny Camp. So when we talk about a natural wonderland, it, it truly is. We moved to the 60s, and in uh, 1969, Morris Baker has passed. His sons were running the club at the time, and they decide to sell to a gentleman named Harper Sibley. Harper's the one pointing at the map. I thought this picture was interesting. Uh, as you come towards the inn, has everybody seen the construction? That's private construction. They're tearing down a building there. That actually was the Marina Inn. Where they're building uh, 26 brand new uh, four to six bedroom condominiums, four to eight million dollars. So that's gonna be about a two year project. This was the original site before that first building that they're tearing down now was built. And the building in the foreground that you look at was on the site that this building sits on today. Just a couple you know, pictures that are they're fine, kind of fun. Just if you're looking at the history of Ocean Reef, you think about the history of fishing, uh, the, uh, the marina office, a fishing tournament from the past. And then I don't know if anyone's aware, in 1964, they had live dolphins here at the club. And for 29 years, they did dolphin shows daily. And if you go over the bridge towards Buccaneer Island, as you look straight down the bridge, you'll see a statue of three dolphins sitting there in remembrance of them. And on the left side, that little lagoon area right in front of the ocean room is where they did the shows every day. Then uh, Harper Sibley sold the property in 1980 to Carl Lindner. Carl Lindner ran the American Financial Group. That was uh, Chiquita Banana. He owned the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, he came down here and continued the development. You also see him with the gentleman. Anybody? Who's the other guy? I forget his name. We actually, well, we'll come to that in a minute. So now we're, uh, that was 1980, five years later, this will give you a pic sense of, if you recall the picture on the left, Ocean Reef Club, 1950, and then just 35 years later, what Ocean Reef looked like. 1990, there was a summit here. The uh, George Bush and Francois Mitterrand was here. We had a total number uh, to date of seven sitting presidents visited Ocean Reef Club. We had two Bush. Uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Clinton, and most recently, Obama was here. Unfortunately, in 1992, we had a visitor that we didn't much care for, and that was Hurricane Andrew. You can see the satellite picture of where Ocean Reef was and where Hurricane Andrew went. Uh, with the storm surge, everybody here is from Florida, so you understand what that means and what it is. We had boats pretty much right out here. <laughs> Uh, and there was, there was significant damage to the club. But what that caused was the developer suddenly was not, just a little less enamored about rebuilding everything. And that's when the members stepped up in 1993 and said, we'd really like to own this club and manage it ourselves. So that's when Ocean Reef Club was sold from the developer to the owners. And for me, that's, that's when the modern times of Ocean Reef begin. We get a better sense of, who and what we are today because most of that has become what you see because of the member owners. And I'm just gonna have Mike talk a little bit about that. Thanks, Richard. So I thought we'd get started here with, uh, you really can't talk about the uh, present day Ocean Reef 
without talking about Paul Asbury. Uh, and I think everyone in this room either knows of Paul or has met Paul or is a friend of Paul. So, yeah, Paul was here, started in uh, 2000. I took over in December of 2014. So Paul had 14 glorious years here at Ocean Reef Club. Um, and I know, having had 16 years at Congressional, what that means. You know, you leave a big footprint, you leave a legacy, you, 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 are, you become part of the fabric of what a club is. And I think, Brian, a lot of the hard work that you did with Paul and all of the stuff that you showed in the video earlier speaks wonders to, to the man. Uh, Paul is an absolutely outstanding hospitality person, a great club guy. Uh, Paul and I um, did, a, I thought, a, a really good transition. He was on property for about two years, doing a tran do two months doing the tran two years. God, that would be a long time. <laughs> I like him, but not that much. A uh, two-month transition, and uh, he and Judy had a house on the property. They sold the house, and now both of them are retired uh, very happily in Santa Barbara, in California. So, in fact, I'm going to be in California in July, and I'm going to, Dale and I are going to spend some time with Paul and Judy in Santa Barbara on our way up to a, a meeting up uh, in San Francisco. So, a lot has to be said for Paul, and you mentioned about the fabulous senior staff that we have here and all of the other associates that are here. You know, I can't take credit for that. That is already Paul putting these wonderful uh, men and women in these positions. And I have not had to do anything other than embrace the fantastic management, the leadership that uh, you experienced last night. I have brought on two additional people to the team. But the team that existed here with Paul still is in place today. And I'm really proud of that because I think it's a tribute to Paul, but more importantly, it's a tribute to these great men and women that, that work here with us. So again, I would uh, just ask you guys for a big round of applause for Paul. He just did a great job while he was here. <laughs> and also a very important part of Ocean Reef, but also an important part of the Florida chapter and important part of CMAA and uh, club manager of the year, so uh, really a, a great guy. I wanted to uh, also just talk a little bit about what we here at Ocean Reef call the three-legged stool. And I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard about this before. I certainly had never heard of this. Uh, it was one of my first pieces of indoctrination or onboarding here, was to understand this three-legged stool. You know, coming from a private club like Congressional where it truly is a blue blood private cl uh, club, and there's a lot of people in this room who are at developer clubs or at uh, residential clubs. This was a whole new experience for me because I wasn't used to dealing with homeowners and all of the other stuff there, and all the other amenities that you have here. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But here really is what was shared with me and now 18, 19 months into my tenure here, I get this. And I get it because I wish somebody had told me about this when I was a congressional. Because this model works at every club, anywhere in the country, I would say anywhere in the world. Quick story. I'm standing in a reception room talking to a couple of members of Congressional Country Club and a member walks up and taps me on the shoulder and he says, Mike, there's a non-member out on the golf course, a stranger out on the golf course. He shouldn't be here. What is he doing out here? I got in a golf cart, drove out. Well, guess what? It was Dr. Smith and his son playing golf. The fact that that member who tapped me on the shoulder didn't know who it was, you guys all know that story. You hear that all the time. 
Who's so-and-so? Why are they here? What are they doing here? Just because I don't know somebody doesn't mean that they're not a member. But for the first time in Congressional, we did a lot of outside parties. We did a lot, a lot of events. This week, you'll get to see Congressional on television and see the, uh, the, the, the Quicken Loans tournament. But I wish I'd had this because what this shows is it shows the delicate balance that we have at Ocean Reef between what we're trying to juggle here. We have equity members that own a property, that have any, a large investment in a membership and in a home, and they here either one month, two months, three months, or as a third of our members choose to do, call this home for an entire year. You have social members. Those are members that come down and utilize the facility for 59 days of the year. But while they're here, they are exactly the same as an equity member, other than that they can't vote. But they get the same experiences, they get the same quality, they do everything, and it's a big part of who we are. We have 22,350 is our cap on that, and we have, right now, we have about 262 waiting to get in on that, on that membership category. Those are the ones that fill the in. That's the other unique part about Ocean Reef is we've got a 140-room ho hotel that we have to fill. You know, that doesn't fill itself. That takes a lot of work to get that done. So we have the infrastructure, we have the people, we have the, the associates and the managers that do that. Part of our job is to make sure that that in does. I would tell you that of our equity members, very few of them, if any of them, ever stay in the end. But their families do, their friends do, and then our social members do. And then again, when you get into the middle of summer, we have the third leg of our stool, and that is groups and guests. Guests of members or groups that come in here. And we selectively choose groups, and that's part of Richard's portfolio, as well as we have a sales team that actually looks at specific groups, organizations uh, not dissimilar to CMA and others. And we have people stationed that have different responsibilities around the country to find these select groups, this kind of size group to come in here and really experience Ocean Reef as a, as a member for, for a period of time. I wish somebody would have told me that, the concept of the stool, when I was at Congressional, because it would have made my life so much easier explaining that to our members. You can't work in isolation. You're not an, uh, an equity member in isolation. You are part of a business. You know, the reason food and beverage prices at Congressional are what they are is because it's subsidized by outside events, outside venues, a PGA event. These all help subsidize, and they're all part of it, uh, and it's great to enjoy them when they're there, but at the same time, it's the one thing that people point to uh, in a private club. So, you know, again, as I said, this is, I'm throwing this stuff out for those of you just who like numbers, who want facts, who just want to better understand who we are. Uh, in 2015, last year, we had a bumper year. Uh, we did total club revenues uh, in the region of 106 million. Our dues came in at about 27 million. Food and beverage at about 25 million. I'm going to come back to food and beverage. Our end did about 18 million. Sport and rec, including golf, about 16. We have a retail division that does uh, a number of stores that we own, did 3 million. And then layered on top of that, I have a president of the Ocean Reef Real Estate Company that reports to me and we are one of five uh, real estate companies uh, within Ocean Reef, and that real estate company, which is only in its third year, uh, generated $112 million in, uh, in sales uh, last year. The challenge we have in real estate, unlike some of your clubs, we kind of peaked out. Most of the houses are built. A lot of the houses are old, wonderful tradition, wonderful history. 
that Richard spoke about dating back to 1945. A lot of those old houses, some of them still exist. A lot of them have been bulldozed down. And in its place, a two-bedroom house or one-and-a-half-bedroom house gets bulldozed down. A small family, mother, father, maybe a kid, gets bulldozed down. On that same property, they put up a mansion. And in that mansion is eight bedrooms. And in those eight bedrooms over peak season, you bet they're 20 people. So we wonder why we have overcrowding. We wonder why our single biggest issue at Ocean Reef is parking. And as you go around, just think about it, it is limited. When you came in with your, with your motor car, you probably have your motor car parked somewhere. And you probably rented a golf car. So now we have to accommodate the, the golf car while your car sits somewhere, you know, in a parking spot. So it's a real challenge for us. And I know it's not different to what Jay's done with the parking garage, what Admiral Strove has done with their parking garage. It, it, we, we're going to have to look at how we address it. So in honor of Paul being British and me kind of half British, we talk about the way the man's heart is through his stomach. And that could not be truer than here at Ocean Reef, and I would suggest that any of your clubs. The one thing, and I said I'd come back with the $25 million worth of food and revenue. The one thing that I get asked all the time by our members, Mike, you've been around, you've seen some clubs, tell us, what kind of a club are we? And you know, you're, you want to jump out and you want to sort of give your opinion and you want to say what you are. But honestly, for the first 10 months, that absolutely flabbergasted me because I just didn't know what to tell them. And it's not because I didn't want to tell them, it was just that I didn't know. You know, I've heard stories that this position, this plot, it's a city, it's a town, it's a country, it's a cruise ship, and the list goes on and on. Paul was the mayor of the city, he's like the priest of a congregation. We've heard it all. But I finally figured out what Ocean Reef is. The one thing that pulls Ocean Reef together, the one thing that celebrates that every single one of our members and guests and everybody that's here can celebrate together is food and beverage. We have amenities. We have a number of amenities. We have a marina. We have an airport. We've got golf. We've got tennis. We've got pickleball. We've got a spa. We've got a church. We've got a lot of different amenities, a lot of different things that people want to use. But the one thing that everybody does here is eat and drink, not necessary in that order. And I say that to you because there are no real viable options for our members. You kind of drove in here, you know you have, the, you have uh, Alabama Jacks, which is a wonderful, fabulous five-star dining facility on your way in. <laughs> and then you can go down to Key Largo and you can experience some of uh, Key Largo's finest down there. But our members like going there just to be able to say they've been there. It's not where they're going to go and eat. Miami Beach is too far, great Mecca, great, you know, great food down there. Unlike a lot of you, where you have fantastic restaurants on your back door. I know Jay's uh, at Boca, his whole idea is not to have his members leave the gate. Well, Jay knows as well that there are a lot of great restaurants right outside of his gate. And that's why Jay does what Jay does so well, is create these new things. And that's what we've had to do here at Ocean Reef. And that's what Paul focused on, and that's what I've continued my focus on, is to have a look at it. The way through Ocean Reef members heart is through the talent, our talented associates and through our amazing dining facilities. We have about 17 different opportunities for you to eat and dine 
at Ocean Reef. Not all of them are operational right now because we're in a kind of a, a little bit of a, a, our quiet time, as it were. There is, that's the other big fallacy that we have a season in Florida. Well, you guys may have, I don't think you do, but we don't have one here because what comes or who comes or who we serve just seems to change. But here are a couple of the ones that we have. The neat thing is that I love and Richard and Giovanni, our food and beverage director, have done is we've got great logos for all of these different, these different opportunities. This is the one thing that astounded me when I first got here. Congressional, we had food and beverage of about 8 million and I thought we were busy. We were doing things all the time. It seemed like we were never stopping. But here's an interesting statistic for you. Club meals served nearly 80,000 between what we call high season or high member season here, and that's December 23rd to January 3rd, about 80,000 meals. December the 30th alone, we served over 11,000 meals. Fisher Island, anybody here from Fisher Island? Fisher Island, how many, somebody mentioned that in, at your beach bar, your beach area, that you would do about 11,000 meals at one, uh, at one of your operations over a period of the season. Is that, would that be accurate? That accurate. So the concept of members all want to eat at the same time is alive and well and living at Ocean Reef. I thought I left that behind me when I, was, uh, when I left Congressional. It's alive and well and it lives here. The time changes, it's not 7, it's 6.30. But one of the things when, we first, when I first got here was how do we feed everybody at that time? How do we have opportunities for members to be fed? One of the things I inherited that I thought was going to be a disaster and is an absolute pleasure is I was having dinner with Paul and he said, you know, Mike, we, we do room service. Really? Room service? Seriously? Why would you? Well, yeah, we've got, got a hotel, 140 rooms. I said, well, yeah, I got that. But, you know, room service is a no-win situation. Any of you in the hotel or hospitality side of things, you know room service is tough. He says, but, Mike, we just don't do it for the room. We do for every door on the property. So we do private dining to every door, whether it's a boat in the marina, whether it's your house, whether it's your condo, whether it's a bedroom. We do private dining to your room, to your house, to your boat. And that blew me away because I thought there's no ways that that could be successful. That has got to be fraught. And Giovanni and his team just absolutely knocked us out of the park. That food, and my wife is the champion of private dining, trust me. <laughs> she uses it regularly. It's unbelievable how, how, how we do that. So one of the things we did to expand our dining opportunities was to put in a food truck. I thought we were the first club ever to do that, but as soon as I posted that on Facebook, and about three or four other club managers said, Mike, you, you're too slow. We've already done that. So maybe I should repost it because none of you ever spent the money we spent on this food truck because Ocean Reef food truck can't be a food truck. It's got to be a food truck on steroids. So this is, uh, this is the food truck. Hugely successful. Does it make any financial sense? Absolutely not. But does it alleviate a lot of the pressure is it something iconic that our members have latched onto and really love and talk about? Absolutely. This food truck is on the beach during our busy season. Uh, it's in the fishing village for our events. It gets used, uh, in fact, if you came in on the weekend, on Saturday and Sunday, you saw it at the, at the corner as you turned to come down. It was out there. It does get used, but it does traditional um, food truck uh, fed. And, uh, 
That, we're still trying to decide, it was designed in a way that that theme, it's a wrap on the food truck, that theme can be changed. So this was 60s, uh, what was it, Richard, 60s, mid-century modern, we, we may do something a little different. We tried all different things with this, quesadillas, we tried a whole bunch of different things and we eventually found being a food truck is really what it does best. So it does the lobster rolls, hamburgers, hot dogs, uh, cuisine. There's an example of the menu. A buccaneer burger, big red dog, grilled cheese, founders fries, uh, a, little, a little nicer than you might think. Some of the expanded dining options we put in place in 2014, quesadilla station out at the beach, grab and go at the reef lounge where you go in for breakfast. That's a big breakfast. And then the only other place for breakfast is to go to the reef lounge. This was an intermediate. It's go to the reef, uh, to the reef um, retreats, go to reef lounge, and then you get a, a special sandwich freshly made. Our members really like that. Reef Hut is a very unique spot. It's a restaurant on property where both members, associates, and contractors all can mix. And it's amazing that our members would want to go and actually be involved in that, but it's amazing how many of our members actually do that. A famous Burgi bar that I believe some of you enjoy too much on Saturday night, and those names will remain anonymous, but our Burgi bar is a fun place, it's a sports bar, it's where you can go in and do something. We started a concept, our Ocean Room, which is where you had breakfast, was not open for lunch or dinner. And one of the ways to add additional um, uh, space for our members was to create a, uh, a founder's dinner uh, venue in that same room. Harper's Barn, a tribute to, uh, to Harper Sibley, uh, that's in the, in, the reef, uh, in the reef lounge. A lot of different special, what we call Starlight Dinner Buffets, Christmas Under the Sea, Wild Western, African Beat, Low Country Boil. These are all on the beach, and these are all uh, doing probably in the region between five and 700 people a night during the busy part of season. We have this really big theme going on now, and it's kind of interesting because you would th think that this is a no-brainer, but one of the things that we've got a big push by our current chairman and certainly by all the senior staff is equity members first. And that is the equity members that have paid the $215,000 to join the club and those that have invested in the property. And the idea is really to make them feel special. And how do we do that? How do we separate them from the social members who get all the same amenities for that short period of time but don't pay nearly as much or not as committed to the property. And some of the thing is we have our own taste brochure. If you haven't seen the taste brochure, I'm not sure, Richard, if we have any left from last season. But if we have, we'll, we'll put them outside. It's worth seeing. It's, it's our entire food and beverage uh, offerings over the season. We do one every year. We're busy working on this year's. That will go out to our members. It's a fairly thick brochure, and I think you'd enjoy seeing that. Uh, we do uh, special dining reservations where our equity members can book ahead of everybody else to be able to do dining, especially over the busy time with Christmas, New Year, and all of the others. And then our cabanas on the beach was another one that we did, trying to make them feel you know, special. Do a number of vine-to-table dinners. That's an example of some of the ones we do. When I first got you, I think we were doing 10 Giovanni. We're now doing, I think, 13 dinners. Uh, extremely well received. Every one of them is sold out. If we had another 50 tables, we could probably sell that out. Uh, it would change the exclusivity and the nature of it, but that's the, the demand. A lot of holiday events uh, similar to what you all do at, at your clubs. Caroling boating, super bingo, ginger, super bingo, where's Meg? Super bingo is on steroids. Oh my god, the gifts we give away at that is ridiculous. 
I want some of those gifts. Gingerbread tea, holiday concert, sorry. Uh, concert on the beach and elf tuckings, which is a really neat concept where we have associates going and tucking kids, uh, dressed up as elves, and they go in and tuck in the kids uh, before Christmas Eve. One of the things that I loved when I first got here was the concept that I think Paul and the senior staff came up with, and that is when our members came back for season, was to give them 100 new things that they could look forward to. And believe it or not, over the years, this became something that they, the members, really looked forward to. Man, what are these guys going to do? What new things are they going to? Well, now we're up to 160 new things from 37 departments. So our members look at this piece when they get it and really try and see what they uh, could enjoy. We have a store down in the fishing village. For those of you who've been down there, it's called Attractions. It's really operational, mostly during seasons. But to give you an idea of what it does, every, uh, every day, every other day, every week, every, every other weekend, we have a different vendor in there. And the different vendor gives our membership an opportunity to go in there and see different things. Give you an example, Lululemon was in there, and Lululemon in two days, over a Friday and a Saturday, sold more in our little clapboard store down at the fishing village at, uh, at the, near the raw bar than their brick and mortar did in Coral Gables. Crazy, right? But that's, uh, that's, what, that's what happened. Parking, I mentioned to you, was an issue. Parking is, continues to be an issue, and until we build a parking garage, it will stay an issue. But some of the things we did, we did some additional parking on tennis courts, and we also really beefed up our valet and, uh, and, um, and cart uh, uh, ride uh, services. Recreation, Mick and his team uh, take care of this. There's a lot of stuff. I am proud to tell you that I have the record, the president record for the 5K distance at Ocean Reef. I'm also the only president that's ever run a 5K at Ocean Reef. So, uh, uh, member events, Fat Tuesday, Chili Cook-Off, uh, Blessing of the Animals, Beach Parties, Easter Egg Parade, Bag Room Open. A lot of fun things. Uh, one of the carts in one of our Easter cart parade actually mimicked exactly what uh, the food truck looked like, which was pretty nice. We uh, have done an annual event with the Navy SEALs. This is where they actually come in and uh, simulate a, a kidnapping of a VIP personnel. So they come in by air, by boat, by land, and uh, it's a fun event that our members enjoy uh, supporting. We have a, wine, a food and wine festival every year. Uh, as Brian mentioned, we opened our tennis and game center. Unlike uh, Jay, who every time I walk through his uh, facilities tells me, well, this is a card room, this is a card room, this is a card room. We don't have a lot of card rooms. This is our card room. And it's a card room uh, for Bridge and for Mahjong. And uh, it, it is at the top end of our tennis uh, facility. Again, Paul uh, got to design all of this. Paul was here for most of the building of that. Uh, I got to... Uh, with Paul, do the ribbon cutting and then pay the bills afterwards and deal with the, uh, the headaches of the, uh, the uh, punch list. And I thank Paul for that all the time. Not only there, but also in Carriesfort. And you'll see more of Carriesfort where you are right now on Tuesday night when you get to experience uh, how we do a farewell party for our membership on Tuesday and how we use this new facility. This is a magnificent facility. If you get a chance, uh, you will be able to see the cooking school on Tuesday night. Uh, but if you get a chance, grab one of uh, the staff with uh, any of our managers or associates with a badge on and have them walk you through that cooking school. Best cooking school I've seen. 
Uh, I was very involved in working with that with Paul Giovanni and myself. We went and visited a lot of places. It truly is magnificent, and you, you should see that. So going back to senior management, we have a structure where we have a steering committee. Uh, all the VPs at, uh, at, at Ocean Reef are, are on a steering committee. There's eight of us that pretty much day in and day out run the club. And then uh, once a week we have a senior staff meeting where we have probably 22 or 23 of our senior managers around uh, to do that. Uh, all great guys. Uh, this gentleman over here, that was the point of work. This gentleman over here, Sonny Vasquez, Sonny's been here 45 years. So when you see all those pictures of uh, all the presidents and you see all the pictures of the dolphins, he's gone from bag guy to dolphin trainer to security guy. He's a one-man department and uh, he's an am amazing individual, as are all the rest of these wonderfully talented uh, senior executives at Ocean Reef. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Richard. He's going to talk about membership, and then I'll close off afterwards. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, Mike. Mike mentioned earlier, we last year started a wait list for our social members. When he talked about the three-legged stool, one of the things that goes along with that is something that we call the sweet spot. And that's the balancing point between all of those uh, elements that are at, vying for access to facilities. And the goal was to make sure we reduce the pressure on those facilities so the equity members could enjoy it and as a result needed to take down the number of social members. We capped the number of uh, conference and meeting programs, the group side of that, to 10,000 room nights in season, December to May, and then 2350 for social. We were over that number, so we had to first, through natural attrition, let that number come down this year. That started the wait list in it, uh, last year, and it carried into this year, and we continued to add people to the wait list, and, uh, going very well, 269 at this point. Uh, our mission statement, maximize satisfaction, desirability, value, and distinction of membership in the Ocean Reef Club by providing unsurpassed value, excellence, and quality in all services and facilities. You probably have something quite similar in many of the clubs you're in. We track it very carefully. We use a program called Clarabridge. Started as market metrics, they were bought by Clarabridge. It's an online program that every guest in the inn Every social member, every equity member have an opportunity to fill this out. If you provided an email address when you checked in, you'll receive one after your stay. It's all automated. Any comments that are, are low, any scores that are low, it tracks two things. It can track sentiment, so the words that you use, if they're negative, it'll pick that up and let us know. If your score is low, it'll let us know, and we know immediately. So members may get a call within an hour of filling one of these out. Uh, in our instructions for requesting them to fill one out, we make it very clear it's not anonymous, and yet they're still surprised when we call. Uh, the total club, and you see here, it's uh, equity members only. We track for everyone. We can track by each uh, different segment, whether it's social member or equity or a guest. Uh, but we've been focused on equity member this year, as Mike mentioned. So for the total club, 93.1, this is on a five-point scale. 175, 50, 25, 1. So that's a very high score if you think about the way that the scale works. Uh, Member Fitness Center, just pointing out a couple of highlights. Member Fitness Center, 98.4. That's why you do need to go take a look at that uh, facility. Cooking School, 96.3. That's for the new one down the road. And the Raw Bar, 96.9. Great place for lunch if you're looking for a spot. And then we can track over a period of time. Number of years, most improved, 
We see the beach bar go from 86, 88 to 91, so we're tracking that improvement, showing success, building uh, the annual goals are based on, for each department, are based on these scores. In two, yeah. Can you put me back on? In the interest of time, I've got, uh, Beth and I have just been talking, we, we do limit time. Maybe just briefly give the overview on the census, because this is something that I think you'd find interesting, but the amount of detail we have here is quite, quite deep. Um, but Richard, I'm just taking you through, we've done one of these before, we're gonna, we've done another two sure. actually. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start you off and then I'll, actually I'll stop and skip over all the slides. They were only here, as you see me skip them, don't be scared. They were only here just to show you the, the breadth of information we gathered, not to go into detail on any of them. But in 2010, we, we have the market metrics I just talked about, the, the member satisfaction survey. But in 2010, we wanted to look at a genuine census, something that really understood attitudes, feelings about the club, uh, about the future, of how members were thinking. Because what does a new member look most like? looks most like the members we already have. So the more we could understand about the members we already have, the better it would be for us to go out and find new opportunities to build membership. This is in 2010. In 2015, we repeated the census. And again, this is an 80 question questionnaire. It takes about 45 minutes to fill out. We had a great response both times. Over 50% of our total membership filled out the census. The data was compiled through an online survey. We used an off-site company so that their answers were protected. We would only see answers in aggregate. We used a professional data survey company. 2,110 families responded, representing a total of 5,000 member families, which is a significant response. And it allowed us significance testing to confirm we had 95% accuracy. So for things like, how old are you? They would answer the question, we could look at the answers from the census and compare it to our actual membership data and say, yes, this answer is within 5%. How long have you been at the club? How long is our average membership length? We could use actual data compared to the census data. So we did that for about five specific questions that we knew the data for, and then we compared them. And to give you a very quick sense, and again, I'll start clicking and I won't stop. Uh, we just looked at things like age, median age, and it also allowed us to compare now, you see the blue and the red, we can compare our answers we got in 2010 and the answers we got in 2015, and now we can start trend lines. So if we continue this every five years, we can see how we're trending. Median age, for example, didn't change in that period of time. So that meant that the club is not aging as we might fear. It's actually meaning we're bringing in enough new younger members to replace the members that are aging or leaving. 1100 uh, 11,000 children and grandchildren here at the club. Uh, I'll pause here real quick. This was interesting. We tracked the number of pets people had. We saw there was a decrease in the number of birds, and we think that correlates to the decrease in number of cats. <laughs> However, there was an increase in dogs. They are becoming more popular. Ocean Reef with two dog parks, one for the large dogs, one for the small. We checked on whether it's a retirement community. It is not. Most are still working. Where do the members live by region? and then in the US and then Canada as well. Where do our newest members come from? How long have you been a member? So we can answer it whether you've been a member five years or you've been a member 20 years and we can compare the data and see how our newest members are finding the club, reacting to what we offer. So we look back and said, how did people first come to Ocean Reef? 
When did they first hear about us? When did they first visit? When did they join? When, how long have they been a member so far? How did that change from five years ago? What's changed in our marketing and our ability to reach them? How did they learn about Ocean Reef Club? Still mostly member referral, but what other ways did they find? Did they look elsewhere when they joined Ocean Reef? 71%, no, I didn't look anywhere else. So we're trying to now get at, are we truly unique? Are we different? Do we stand out? When you did, where did you look? And we have more specific data on that. Why did you choose Ocean Reef? How do you use the club on a daily basis? Things like, how often are you here? This also helped in terms of Monroe County has very strict building restrictions uh, because of hurricane evacuation. And this showed that our members that live here are not here in the summer. We used it to secure better building capabilities for our members. Um, we looked at real estate, what you currently have, what you might think about buying, are you thinking about buying in the future, tells us whether it's a good time to open a real estate company or not, and that worked out well for us, as you saw earlier. How you use the club for activities, food and beverage, why do you leave the club, what kinds of things are we not offering that you need to go find elsewhere, how do you feel about golf, how do you feel about tennis, how often do you play, uh, how many boats do you own and where do you keep them, and how has that changed over time. What do you value highly at the club? All of the elements that are here, the marina, the medical center, do you, do you value it in terms of your equity investment was the way we asked the question. This allows us to put more money into the golf course because members that don't even play golf find it highly valuable to have the beautiful golf course as you drive in and as you move about the club. Things like that, invest in the marina, invest in the other <coughs> facilities that are here. Do you, social media was interesting. In 2010, Facebook and Twitter were the only ones we asked about because Instagram and Pinterest didn't exist. LinkedIn was barely a blip, so now we're seeing how quickly that's evolving and how more and more members are using it. Do you stream movies? Is cable important? Learning about what we offer in the community. How important is public safety? And then, very important, how do you feel and how do you view the future? Over the next five years, how should the club maintain its facilities? Should they be in a first-class condition? 1% minimum maintenance. A lot of questions we asked, this same 1% was our, our we know who they are. 12% <laughs> said maintain but not improve and then maintain in a first class condition, 87%. So you know the board will be using this to support any decisions that they're making in terms of capital development and improvement. Do you expect to use the club more in the next three years, in the next five years? and we compared 2010, 2015, but we also went back to 2010 and said how many people that were members at that time said they would use the club more, what's the number, just taking those people and the actual spend in the club and comparing it three and five years later, did they actually do what they said they were gonna do? So we confirmed with actual data that they did, so now this time when they tell us the same thing, this means we can anticipate continued growth in revenue in all our areas. Uh, do you recommend to others, and it's almost every member has, 94% continues to do so. Uh, are you thinking about buying a dock, a condo, a house? Again, looking at future spend opportunities that exist. If Ocean Reef did not exist, where would you go? And there's a lot of possibilities, but the most popular was, I don't know. That again is towards that, are we truly unique? Over the next five years, ORC will become less vital, stay the same, or thrive and grow. So stay the same, thrive and grow, significantly outweigh anything else that we're seeing. And then lastly, and most important, is Ocean Reef truly unique? You know, we say unique way of life, is that real, is that authentic? 
1% says, well, here they are again, not much different from other club-based communities. 21% similar, but not exactly the same. And 78%, absolutely Ocean Reef Club is totally unique, blue sky like nothing else. So that just gives you a sense. There's a lot more data and a lot more detail on that. And if anybody's interested in learning more about who we used or how we went about that, you know, we're happy to help you with that. Thank Mike. you, Richard. Okay. So we're going to quickly go through a little bit about the future. And I shared uh, with you some of the things that the challenges we faced, uh, parking being one. But as we embark on this uh, strategic plan, uh, we really need to look at everything. And we have three areas. We have the fishing village, which you've seen. We have this core area where you are now with, uh, with the inn and uh, the rooms. And then we have Buccaneer Island. So we're busy looking at different plans. That's the old existing core area. And the pros, we're looking at a different way of seeing how we do it. And really trying to embrace the water and embrace the uh, open spaces and uh, the, the, the beauty, that, the natural beauty that exists here. Again, this is a plug for Brian, but some of the stuff that's already been done, member fitness center, you've seen the spa. Town Hall, Cary Sport Hall, uh, just really the cooking school is amazing. Beach bar, uh, tennis and games, some of the in rooms, marina, Gianni's. If you haven't had dinner, Gianni's. Uh, Michael McCarthy tells me it's his favorite, uh, favorite restaurant of all time. So I want to leave you on this because we're going to break now. You're going to get a chance for five minutes, maybe three minutes because we've run over, is to walk outside and try a slice of our key lime pie. And I want to tell you briefly the story of key lime pie. When I first got here, we were doing key lime pies about five or six different ways. And one of the things that you all appreciate is you have to have a signature item. Well, what better signature item if you live in the Keys than to have the best key lime pie in the Keys? Our key lime pie was great, but it wasn't marketed well. And I would have members say, Mike, you've got to go down to the little shack down in Key Largo and go and try their key lime pie. It's the best key lime pie in the... And that, to be honest with you, that irritates the poop out of me. <laughs> I hate hearing that because with us here, it's got to be the best and we've got to be able to do that. Giovanni, myself, Chef Philippe, Chef Damien, a team of about six or seven of us got together and we literally spent three months working on key lime pie. I know this sounds crazy. I know you think that's not a good idea to have those highly compensated individuals do it. But if you understand this, it's not about the key lime pie. What it's about is it's about creating a signature item that we can all get behind and rally. These key lime pies are oversized in the restaurants. They're underpriced in the restaurants. They are sold, or they should be sold to you as an option at the end of every meal. Would you like a slice of the key lime pie, with the exception of Gianni's? The Italian themed restaurant does their own thing when it comes to desserts. Everywhere else, you should be getting the same key lime pie. And they should be offering it to you because it's so big. When you say, I don't want anything for dessert, I'm on diet, you know, paleo, all of that, they should be saying, try one, four spoons, six spoons, eight spoons, doesn't matter, try it. Well, since we did it, that, uh, that was as of probably a week and a half ago. We're probably up around 9,000, maybe a little bit more slices of pie since we put the new pie in. So with that, we're going to stop. Please make your way outside. There'll be a slice of key lime pie. Uh, I don't know what is more daunting, speaking in front of a group of your peers or speaking in front of a group of your peers with uh, uh, half of the senior leadership of Ocean Reef in the room. It's, uh, so I, I would like to just echo my thanks to Beth and her team and just Beth, we really appreciate you selecting Ocean Reef Club 
And it's so special to have you guys here. It is so special to have all of you, all of the managers and members of CMAA here, Florida chapter here. It was really special. I said to a, a table this morning, what makes it special is that you notice all the little touches that we did throughout the, the two days or three days that you've been here. You know, that's the kind of eye that you guys have that, you know, with other groups and, and with others, they don't see that. But the amount of people that came up and specifically pointed out the little details that our team put in place uh, was fantastic. And I've shared that with the team. And thank you all for, for the wonderful compliments. But it's been a, an absolute uh, pleasure to do that uh, for all of you. Beth did want me to announce that um, Next year, same time, same place, we're going to be hosting this event again here at Ocean Reef. So we're excited to uh, welcome you all back. And we certainly thank, the, thank Beth again and the, and the board for, uh, for giving us that privilege of being able to serve you again and to be able to uh, share with you such a wonderful place like Ocean Reef. Um, with that said, hands up. Is that Lonnie? Michael, could you do me a favor? Yes, sir. Everybody pronounces your name differently. Can you pronounce it for us? Sure. So I pronounced it for the last 62 years, Liam Hayes. My kids pronounce it Lemus. And the correct pronunciation I found out a year ago was Lame House. So Lonnie, take your pick, friend. <laughs> The best thing that ever happened to me when I got to Ocean Reef is they figured out how to say it here. It's called Mr. L. <laughs> best thing that ever happened. So one of the things I wanted to talk about today is, is about success and leadership. And for those of you who've sat in some of the classes that I've given, you know how passionate I am about this. It is something that is a constant evolution for me. There is no stopping understanding success. There is no stopping understanding leadership. It's this constant drive, this constant looking. For any of you on Facebook with me and you see my postings, it's a constant thing for me looking at trying to find out how can we be better? How can I personally be better? How can my kids be better? How can my family be better? And if anything else helps any of you in here, then you're welcome to it. It's not designed for all of you, selfishly, it's designed for me. So all the, res all the research and stuff I do is really about how can I help myself and my team get better day in and day out. And I'm happy to share that with everybody. And if there's one nugget today that you're able to take away and use, then my, my mission would have been accomplished. Because this is not about remembering everything. This is free information. This is a lifetime of research. You guys are welcome to this presentation. I've told Beth. Uh, I'll put this in a PDF. You guys are welcome. I'll let Beth know. I'll actually give it to Beth, and then you contact Beth, and she can share that with you. Take it, use it, share it with whoever you want to. You're welcome to it. It is, uh, it's free. So here's the first question. When, when I got started down this journey um, a number of years ago, and as an immigrant to this country, you need to understand I divide my life up into two different sections. The first life was my life in South Africa, and I believe there was success for me in that. And then there was the second part of my life, virtually starting from scratch to create success, however I define success, in the second part of my life. And being an immigrant really defines who, who I am, because think about coming to a country and not having all the infrastructure, 
of school friends, university friends, all of the other stuff that you get to do when you're a young kid growing up. That didn't exist for me in the second part of my life, so I had to kind of reinvent how, how, I, how I went that. So when I asked the question of people, who wants to be successful? Who wants to be wildly successful? The answer is everybody puts up their hands. It's an easy one. Everybody wants to be successful. Do you know anybody who doesn't want to be successful? They don't exist. But it's the definition of success that changes for each and every one of us. And more importantly, it's the commitment that you will make to be successful. You can walk out of this room today after this presentation, you can make one or two decisions. One, I'm going to carry on with life as it is. Or two, I'm going to change. And in changing, I'm going to achieve goals and I'm going to be successful. Not my definition of success, your definition of success. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, here's a great slide. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change. The thing that I faced and, uh, when I first came to Ocean Reef Club is when a new person comes into an organization, what does everybody fear? Change. It's right, we're used to what we had, but now we've got a new person coming in, and what's the new person going to do when he comes in? People fear change. I love change. I hate things being status quo. I drive, drive my wife crazy. Any of you a furniture mover? I'm a furniture mover. Man, I come home and I don't like the couch where it is, I start moving it around. Now, I don't do it as much anymore because I'm 62 years old and you know, I can put my back out and that would affect a lot of other things. But I would drive my, my wife crazy. But I like change. I embrace change because I think with change comes growth and with growth comes success. So here's another great slide here. Who wants to change? Everybody wants to change. And who, uh, who will change? Nobody wants to do that. I don't know why this clicker's not working. So the question, as I said to you earlier, is when you, when you leave here today, what will you do? Will you take action? And secondly, will you sacrifice? Because action comes with a sacrifice. And you have to understand that to make change, to effect change, everybody in the process has to... Ah, thank you. Everybody in the process has to sacrifice. When I got here and ch effected change at Ocean Reef, I had to make sacrifices. But more importantly, a lot of the senior staff that are sitting in the room today had to make changes. They had to adapt. They had a whole different person coming in, expecting a whole lot of different things, and, and suggesting you know, silly, stupid little things that need to be done. Key lime pie. Giovanni embraced it. He and his team sort of humored me through a three-month process, and we ended up with something. That's something that easily people could just say, hey, you know, what, what is this guy thinking about? He's, you know, that's just crazy. So the question you need to ask yourself is, where do you see yourself in a year, two years, four years, five years, 10 years, 15 years? I would suggest to you, if you don't have that plan mapped out, where you want to be one day is never going to happen. Because if you don't have a plan to get to where you want to be, it's not going to happen. The plan will change. That you need to understand. The plan will change. And life may take you in a different direction. And it might take you in a better direction. I will tell you, at my age, I never ever thought I'd be sitting here at Ocean Reef Club. I was supposed to retire from Congressional in February of this year. And I was going to go on and who knows what I was going to do. Life takes you in a lot of different ways, but they all, at the end of the day, take you, I think, where you deserve to be.
So the question I have for you is, do you know what success looks like? And if I ask you that question, and if I ask for a show of hands, I'm sure you'd all put up your hands and you'd say you know what success looks like. But what I would urge you to consider, success is not what you read in glossy magazines. Success is not what you see in the movie theater. Success is not what you see when you look at rich, wealthy people traveling around the world. That is not success, ladies and gentlemen. That might be the definition of that individual's success, but it may not be the definition of your success. And if you react to success trying to achieve what is impossible for you to achieve, your life is going to be miserable. So you need to understand what your definition of success is. So your takeaway for today is, what do you define as success? And I'm going to share on a very personal note with you my definitions of success. And I hate doing that because one, it can come across as you trying to brag or you trying to sort of show what you've done with your life. And it's not meant to be that. It's, it's, an, it's, it's embarrassing for me. It's not embarrassing. It's difficult for me to do. But it's the only way I know how to share with you how to get to defining your own version of success. So please, and in there, there's some embarrassing photographs of me as well. So please, please live with me on this. So success is not all glitz and glamour. Success is not a straight line. I will tell you that my wife and I have been on that journey on the right-hand side many times. Many, many times. Many times you have to step backwards four or five times to step forward one step. But you need to understand that. If you understand that, you're in great shape. Life is not on the left-hand side. I don't know anybody who was successful who went down a path on the left-hand side of this picture. The path looks like this path on the right-hand side. Success is also not what you always see. When you see su successful people in any walk of life, Ask yourself the question, how many hours, how much time, how much sacrifice have these people made to be successful? To watch Dustin Johnson do what he did at Oakmont this past week. Have any of you got any clue how many hours, how many golf balls he would have hit, how many countless hours he stood on a practice facility doing all of the things to get to be able to do that? Forget the 10,000 hours. Forget the book. Just think about what the sacrifice. And the sacrifice, all you see is a, a, a good-looking man, a well-built, beautiful wife, beautiful child, raising a trophy. I think the prize money was $1.8 million. That's what you see. That's the glitz and glamour. What you don't see are the days and days and hours and hours and months and months and years and years of practice that has gone in there. So it's not what you see. I'm a big quote guy, I love quotes. This is Brian Tracy, successful people are always looking for opportunities to help others. Unsuccessful people are always asking what's in it for me. I think if your goal in life is to get ahead and that's your primary goal, you will not succeed. Your primary goal needs to be defining your success, working on your plans and your goals to get there. But in the way, on the way, your journey is to be helping others be successful. And in helping others, you, you yourself, without knowing it, will be helping yourself get to where you need to be. And I believe that. Successful people are simply those with successful habits. I never dreamed of success. I worked for it. I'm a big work ethic guy. And, and that comes from, again, from my immigration and being an immigrant to this country. When I got here, I didn't have anything other than what I had, what I stood up in. I mean, I, did, I worked on jobs doing concrete driveways. Uh, I worked as a roofer. 
I worked in a vegetable produce place. I did stuff that I'd come from an executive position in South Africa, and I got to the US, I couldn't find a job. I kid you not, I could not find a job. I could not get somebody to hire me, irrespective of what I did. It was just, I spoke funny, I came from a place that people didn't really know much about. I went to a university that nobody could pronounce. Education was different. The British system versus American system is different. It's a lot of different things. So the only thing I had was work ethic. And I'm a big work ethic guy. This lady here, a fitness expert, Kiana Tong, when I meet successful people, I ask 100 questions as to what they attribute, what they attribute their success to. It is usually the same. Persistence, hard work, and hiring good people. And of those three, I believe in what we do the thing that we need to do is surround ourselves with good people. I have great people that work with me here at Ocean Reef. I have great people that work with me at Congressional Country Club. Far smarter than me and people that in, in each of their individual areas knew exactly what they were doing. I would go to the point of saying experts in their field. Finding those experts is not easy, but once you have them, you have to hold on to them. I think that's a real attribute. Tony Robbins, I love this guy. Successful people ask better questions, and as a result, they get better answers. Vince Lombardi, a member of Congressional Country Club, an honorary member, one of my favorite coaches, uh, just a fabulous guy. The difference between a successful person and others is not a lack of strength, not a lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of will. The question again, what will you do today when you leave to go home? Will you change in some positive way to help you be successful, your definition of success moving forward. Conrad Hilton, success seems to be connected with action. Successful people keep moving, they make mistakes, but they don't quit. So here's the embarrassing part for me, or the, the sensitive part for me. Those of you who heard me speak before, I'm a big arrow quiver guy. And, and I've, I, I probably have belabored this point way too much. But I believe in life what you have is you have an empty quiver, and all of you understand what a quiver is. It's a container that holds arrows back in the old Robin Hood days. You have a bow and you have arrows. And you go through life putting arrows in your quiver, whatever those arrows are. But every decision you make, everything you attempt, whether it's your CCM, whether it's your MCM, whatever it is, your college degree, the class that you take today, whatever it is, you're putting arrows in your quiver. And at the end of the day, when it matters, whether it's seeking a job or getting interviewed or whatever it is, it's basically your arrows against my arrows. And I believe those who have the most arrows win. I have more bullets, you don't have enough bullets, I win. You lose. It's as simple as that. So here we go. I'm going to share with you my definition of success, and I would hope that you take this in the light that it's been given to you, and I hope too that this is an exercise you do when you leave here today. You sit down and you say, what is my definition of success? Let me put down what makes me who I am today. Define your success, because each one of you have a list just like mine. The, your list may be different, but each one of you have a list that has defined you and your success to this day. So, first and foremost, I'm a husband. I'm married for 32 plus years. I actually think it's 33. I'm glad Dale's not here because she'd shoot me that I didn't know exactly how many years it was. But I think it's 33, so I use the plus just in case. But what defines me on that is that, you know, I'm committed to, to, to my relationship. I'm committed to that. Is it easy? No. Is it easy to get divorced? 
I don't know. I've never been in that situation. But once I'm in, I'm in. And I believe I'm in for the long haul. And there are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be difficult times. There are going to be tough days. They're going to be screaming and shouting. Anybody who tells you differently has never been married. <laughs> the other thing is I'm a father. I have two wonderful sons. I've been blessed. These two sons have given me a lot of joy. And this journey that I started on about success and about leadership is all about them. It's all about trying to leave them a legacy that they can have that gives them guidance, that gives them a roadmap, hopefully one day to define who they are and to, to have success in their lives, however they define it. I wish somebody, as a kid, had given me that. I wish a father or a grandfather or somebody or a mentor, somebody had said, hey Mike, follow these things, do this and you'll be successful. Unfortunately, you have to sometimes figure these things out yourself. The, second thing, the third thing, I'm not going to belabor that, but as an immigrant, it is difficult to come to a different country. It is starting fresh. You have to look at it through, through different eyes. And part of that is there's an, uh, there's an advantage. I can't tell you how many people say, oh, Mike, I love your accent. It's less and less now because it's not that pronounced. The other one is an undergraduate degree. You know, you go to college. That's mine. I, I think it was important. That was four years of my life. I went there, I studied, I worked hard, I got a degree. I think that's important. It's one of my things. I went back, one of the transitions as an immigrant, I went back and I went to, I went to uh, uh, different job interviews and people couldn't even pronounce the university I went to. They couldn't understand why I, uh, why I was getting D grades, the odd D plus, the odd C. So I said, well, if they can't pronounce my university and they can't understand how these things get graded internationally, well, then I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to do a graduate degree. I'm going to go to a school that they probably recognize, and then I'm going to see how my grades go moving forward. I went back to grad school. Uh, I had a kid. I had one on the way. I had a mortgage. I, had that. I paid for it with a credit card. It cost me $35,000. My mother-in-law swore she'd never speak to me again. She thought it was the most irresponsible thing I could do. She said, you don't have a job, you've got this credit card debt, you should be at McDonald's, you should be doing something, earning an hourly living and taking care of your family. Now, it was nice, she's unfortunately passed away, but it was nice about 10 years later to be able to rub that in her face. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But it was interesting, because once, once I made this decision, things changed for me, because suddenly, I didn't go to a great university, East Carolina University. My wife's from Rocky Mount. It's equidistance to go to East Carolina University or to go to uh, um, North Carolina State. People say, why do you go to East Carolina University? Guess what? Less traffic. So I was, didn't have a better degree, didn't have anything, less traffic. When you're a parent and you've got two kids, you know, you make decisions. But on the grade side, internationally, everything's graded, is graded raw scores. I come to find out I was sitting in a, an undergraduate class with a couple of kids and I was sweating, it was a nutrition class, and I was sweating whether or not I was going to pass it. And they admitted me because my grades were so bad from my, my, my undergraduate degree, because they didn't understand rule scores versus you know, grading on a curve. They said, we'll let you in, but you have to maintain a B plus or A average throughout. So I was sweating this nutrition class undergraduate that I had to do to do the graduate work. Come to find out, one of the kids said, why are you sweating this? I'm like, well, I've got to pass this. I don't have an option. You know, I mean, I've got to pass that. He said, listen, everything here is graded on a curve. You're not going to fail. Listen, you're not going to fail this class. It's graded on the curve. You, 
You might not get an A if that's what you're looking for, but you're not going to fail this class. And suddenly then I realized that there was just a difference, another difference in the way education is graded and looked at. All my scores were raw. Needless to say, the admissions office, I went back to her afterwards and I said, I just want to explain something to you. You better understand better how your job is. When you're dealing with international students, you need to understand the difference between a raw score and a curved score. CMAA, the single biggest influence in my life and my career is CMAA. Jack Quick is not in the room today, I don't believe, but I've told some of you the story. Jack uh, was a general manager of a little club in North Carolina in Rocky Mount called Benvenue. I was a young golf professional, not that young, 31, golf professional. And I was going through the process, having been certified in South Africa, getting certified in the US. And as I went through this process, I met Jack. And Jack said to me, he said, Mike, do you really want to be a golf professional for the rest of your life? I was like, I hadn't really given a thought. He said, man, there's this really neat job. He said, do what I do. I said, well, what do you do? He goes, man, I kind of stick my nose into golf a little bit. I stick my nose into tennis. I stick my nose into the pool. I stick my nose into food and beverage. He said, I have my finger in a whole bunch of different pies. He said, wouldn't you like to do that? I said, man, I'd love to do that. He said, well, this is the organization for you, CMAA. And here's John Sybil's stuff. And you, those of you in older guys in the room remember John Sybil. Here's his stuff. Look at all these wonderful jobs John's got advertised. And as I said, I never really looked back after that. PGA of America, a PGF style, PGA of America. You know, I kind of define some of my personal achievements by doing things that are difficult to do that people wouldn't expect a fat guy could do. And the reason I say that is I'm not typically a person built to run a 40-kilometer marathon. But I've done 40 marathons. And I tell you that for no other reason other than to do a marathon doesn't take talent. It just takes commitment. It takes sacrifice to do that. And then you get into triathlons, it, it's kind of the, the same thing. And then finally, and I'm sorry these slides moved up a little bit, but finally and, and most important for, is meaningful work. You know, we spend an inordinate amount of time on, the, on our job and doing what we do. And if you don't love what you do and if you don't have a passion for this, then you know, find something else to do. Go in a different direction. Don't, don't put yourself through this. You know, I believe, and I've said to people that I work with, I'm a 55-hour week on average person. That's what I believe we should put into this. There are going to be weeks when you work 100 hours. There'll be weeks over a, mem weeks over a member guest where you're putting in 110 hours. But on average, don't come to work just to say you've come to work. Don't come to work and play games with me that you're at work, but you're not working. All I care about is can you get the job done, and if you can, let's get it done, and then spend time with your family, do the things that are important in life. The job is important, but it's not necessarily who defines you. So I told you there'd be some embarrassing pictures. Yes, the one on the left-hand side is me, and yes, those are shorty shorts. <laughs> and uh, I will tell you, uh, just so you get a perspective, it's not like I was winning this race. On the left side there, you can see I came in 1,124th, and I came in at a time of 14 hours and 42 minutes, and the people that were finishing and winning that race came in in half the time. So it's, it's, uh, you see it, in, it, it put it in perspective. So the key to success in my mind is doing stuff. And here's where we come to a little bit of research. And the thing I love about Ray, my brother from another mother, and what you heard Ray tell you in this last session, Ray's actually going to speak to our senior staff afterwards, and, and I can't wait for them to hear what he does. I first met you when you first got started doing this stuff. And, and at the time, Ray told me the story about 
The reason he got into this business, he sat in the boardroom and you might have told the story and people were spending hours talking about a hamburger and the cost of a hamburger. He says, we have to have a better time and place to be discussing these things. But let's look at some of these things. So I wanted to do a survey to actually find out what my peers, what people in the industry decided were important things. What are the certain characteristics? What are the traits? What are the things you need to have in your quiver that allow you to be successful? What is it to be a great leader? You know, people say leaders, great leaders are born. That's BS. Great leaders are not born. Great leaders are made. And the army and other places will tell you that, and it's true. It's also being in the right place at the right time to really step up and be the leader is also very important. Uh, what is success? My interest in getting from good to great. How do you start at one spot and become great? How do you become in, in you know, the Rich Carlton standard or the Four Seasons standard or the standard above where you live? What is it takes you from good to great? I looked at 25, 26 survey factors, characteristics or traits. I went out to club leaders, club GMs, CEOs, CEOs. I went to 200 peer club leaders that were surveyed. I got 146 responses, right? That's pretty strong, right? To get that. And these were mostly from the United States, but there were others that were from international, the UK, Australia, Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand. The interesting thing is, when you laid the international responses over the US responses, they were virtually exactly the same. There were two or three that were in there that, wouldn't, that weren't in the American one or vice versa. But the order of priority of, of what was important was virtually exactly the same, which I found very interesting. And then finally, you know, we all understand that leading a club today has gone from being a job to being a profession. And what you heard Ray say about the numbers is truly what this job is all about. So, we did the survey. At the end of the survey, we wrote an article. And uh, this article was published, I forget now, in Club Management magazine. But two things I wanted to point out to you here. This arrow here shows that never once did the concept of knowing about food and beverage, or knowing about golf, or understanding aquatics, or understanding none of that ever came up. N the, the specific knowledge of specific things within what we do never ever reached the level of consideration in this. So it doesn't matter whether you come to this industry as a golf professional, a finance person, an HR person, you know, a food and beverage person, it doesn't matter. What matters is, can you get to where you need to be on the leadership side? Great leaders are defined more by their character than their competence, and hire for character and train for competence. So the first one, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. The first one is integrity. There's really not a lot to say about integrity. You either have it or you don't. It's the number one on the list. And we've seen all of the instances of different things that have happened at different clubs. Right here at this very club, we had an associate steal money from the club. You probably all read about it. It's not a secret. It was in the media. You find that. I see things. I get messages that come across where a general manager is siphoning off clubs from some small club in the Midwest or wherever. You either have integrity or you don't. You either believe in that and live your life that way or you don't. I can't help you with that. It's there or it's not there. That's not something that you... Communication. I believe communication is the single biggest factor that you can have to be a great leader and to be successful. You can never communicate enough. There's not one of us in this room that communicates as, as effectively as we could. I'm going to share a couple of quotes with you. 
This is Jack Welch. So this is my favorite, favorite, favorite co quote. Communicate, communicate, communicate. When you think you have communicated enough, communicate some more. You cannot over-communicate, especially when we're talking to our managers, our associates, or our members. Uh, we have a chairman right now who's an, who's an advertising marketing genius, and this lesson is, is, comes through everything he does. I mean, we rewrite stuff that goes out to the membership four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times before it goes out. It can be frustrating, don't get me wrong, but it's important because when it goes out and the kudos comes back, that you've created a magnificent communication piece. It makes everybody feel really good. Jack Welsh, number one, Greg Patterson, cash is king. Number two, communicate. Number three, buy or bury the competition. I think one and three are both Greg's uh, mantras. So. so communication, let me go back to the slide. On a, new, a number of different levels. Speaking, public speaking, communicating with your teams, written communication, verbal communication, uh, whether you use social media or not, uh, whether you write, whether you create articles, there's a lot of different ways. The one that's probably used the least is listening. And that is listening to what other people are having to hear, not with the idea of what am I going to say while they're talking. It's listening and action. It's the most difficult one. It's the one we all struggle with uh, to do. I struggle with it. Positive attitude. I love this one because <clears throat> You have a choice each and every day. I would tell my kids this, and I still talk to them about this today. When you wake up in the morning, when you get out of bed and your foot hits the ground, you have two choices. Today I'm going to be positive. I'm not talking about la-la land. I'm not talking about you know, running around and you know, give you an example. You look to Greg Patterson. When Greg Patterson's on stage, and when Greg Patterson is having dinner with you, two totally different Greg Pattersons, right? So I'm not talking about just, you know, everything's rosy, everything's fine. But I'm saying choose to be positive. Choose to see the glass half full as opposed to the gla glass half empty. You make that choice. Or you can be negative and you don't smile. And one of the things that has just blown me away, one, I knew this about our staff and I knew this about all of our associates. I knew this about my, our managers. But virtually to a person that has shook my hand to this weekend and thanked me, has talked about one thing and one thing first. And that is the friendliness, the positiveness, the smiling associates that we have at Ocean Reef Club. That's the first thing that everybody talks about. So I appreciate it and kudos to the, to the team. That was built in here. That was part of Paul Asprey. That was part of what was here existing. It was, uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. Positive attitude gives you power over your circumstances instead of your circumstances having power over you. Positive attitude brings strength, energy, motivation, and in initiative. Four, commitment. So this is where I want to go back to a marathon. How many of you run a marathon? Anybody? Brian, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So for those of you who run a marathon, you, you're going to appreciate the story. Uh, those of you that haven't, I will tell you that running a marathon is a personal experience that everybody should try once in their life. And there's nobody in this room that is too old to run a marathon. So don't tell me you're too old, I'm too overweight, I'm too skinny, uh, I don't want to hear that. It is a personal journey that will take you through an entire life. Forget about golf being a, a, a game of life that takes you through different emotions up and down, you hit a bad shot, you hit it. No. Marathon, you actually get to a point where you say, that's it. 
I've had enough. I cannot put another step in front of another step to finish this race. And you know what? I have run with somebody like that, and I dragged his behind through, and he achieved something that he would never, ever have achieved on his own. The body is a very powerful, and the mind is very, very powerful thing. So the marathon is a long-distance running event with an official distance of 42.195 kilometers. You might think, why 1.95? Or in the case of miles, 385 yards? Because every step counts. When you heard him, every step counts. Usually run as a road race, a history, uh, the history has it a distance from the Battle of Marathon to Athens by Philippides. So, how many of you think you would attempt that life experience of running a marathon? A couple of you put your hands up. So here's the deal, and we're talking about commitment. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to run a marathon and step out the door, put your shoes on, and run a marathon. Right? That doesn't happen. You wouldn't get five, five kilometers and you'd fall over. But the commitment part is, I'm going to run a marathon, but here's my plan. It's going to take me nine months from today to get to where I want to be. I'm going to put my shoes on. I'm going to go outside at 5 o'clock in the morning when it's still dark, and my wife is sleeping and she's cozy in bed, my spouse is in bed, and the dog's sleeping. I'm going to go out. I'm going to walk a mile. The next day I'm going to get up again, I'm going to put my shoes on, I'm going to walk a mile and a half. You get the point. You have to make a commitment to get to that. But when you finish that, whether it's a 10K race, a 15K race, a half a marathon, whatever it is, the sense of accomplishment, I will tell you, is unbelievable. Commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood that left you in, the, the mood you set it in has left you. How many people have talked about doing things in the spirit of a cocktail party like last night? Well, oh, Mike, I love the idea of running a marathon. Man, count me in. I'm going to do it. I had somebody, I'm uh, training to do a half Ironman. I had somebody say, I'll do it with you. I forget who it was. In Miami. He said, I'll do it with you. Miami won. <sighs> the half one. I can't remember. It's in October. So I'm going to do it with you. I said, awesome. The question is, did he remember this morning that he said it last night? And does he understand what, it ha what happens, what he has to do to make that happen? You know? So, number five, inspire. I think you were born, you were put on this earth to inspire other people. I think by how you behave, how you act, what you do, how you treat other people, the list goes on and on. You were put on this earth to inspire others. I don't care at what level, I don't care who it is, I don't care whether it's your spouse, I don't care whether it's your kids. It doesn't have to be the President of the United States, it can be your kids. You are put on this earth to inspire somebody. And remember that as you go through that. Lead by example. Do what others want. I tell my kids the way you get on in life is everybody wants to do the fancy, sexy things, right? Nobody wants to, to clean golf cars. Nobody wants to sweep a cart barn. Nobody wants to wash dishes. But if you do the things that others don't want to do, people recognize that. And they say, man, if that person's available and willing to do that, I'm going to give him a chance to do something else. And that's important to me, is to inspire. Keep calm and inspire someone. Number six, forward thinking. I've joined these two together. As I did the research, forward thinking and strategic thinking came up as two, one right after the other. I think they're really very similar. So I've really joined the two of them together, and I'm calling them number six and number six plus. Forward thinking is thinking about what the future. It's the discussion we're having today. What are your successes? What are the things that you've done? What are the things in your life? What are your arrows? What is the future? 
There are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. I sat in on your, on, not yours anymore, it's now my chapter meeting at Jay's place. And it's funny because as I was listening to Jay, and Jay and I are great friends, and I know he's great friends with a lot of you in the room, but it was amazing how many things that Jay said were things that I believed in, and he and I have never really talked about it. The, bit, the thing that he told that just struck me like a, you know, somebody knocking me out was, he doesn't like the word no. I don't like the word no. There is no such way. If you've done what I've done physically, whether it's run a marathon or do a triathlon, there is no word no. No fat guy should be able to go and do the things you do, but you do it because you will not accept no. You will not accept it's not going to happen. So when people tell me, I had a, a guy congressional, John probably would remember this, security guy told me that we couldn't figure out how to take uh, photographs of cars leaving, coming in and out of the gate. We didn't have a gate that was guarded. Cars would come in. We had somebody that was stealing for us, from us from the outside. And he said to me, there's no ways of doing it. I said, you have one chance. I want to hear from you again that there's nothing that can be done to solve this problem. He said, there isn't. I said, okay, give me 10 minutes. 30 minutes later, I presented to him a solution. I said, don't ever come back and tell me no. Tell me your research, tell me you'll find out, tell me you'll have questions, but don't come back and tell me that it can't be done. Because if you want it badly enough, you can make it happen. So six plus is strategic thinking. I don't know if this is happening to all of you, but there just seems to be an abundance of strategic planning going on in private clubs right now. Uh, I experienced it at Congressional, I've experienced it here. We're on the mid in the middle, as I shared with you the other day, of a plan that will take us for the next 15 to 20 years. So a real focus on strategic thinking, strategic planning, trying to figure out what our needs and our members' needs are going to be into the future. Strategic thinking. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a whole presentation of strategic thinking. I'm not going to take you through that. Seven, common sense. I love this one because Common sense is just your gut feeling. And you're going to layer over all of the goobly gob that Ray tells you, all the statistical stuff, I'm just kidding. But at the end of the day, you know whether something is going to work or not work. You know whether something's right or wrong. And you need to lead with your gut. You need to have some common sense. Don't overthink. Don't overplay. Use some common sense. Common sense is like a deodorant. The people who need it most never use it. Number eight, confidence. I love this one because people say, oh, you know, I'm kind of shy, withdrawn, you know. The confidence is an act. Confidence, you're on a stage. You're in front of people. You are, in our business, we're on a stage 24-24. When you're out in front of the members, you're on a stage. I was sharing with somebody the other day, I live on property. Part of my, my deal, part of the, the thing that they wanted me to do was when I moved to Ocean Reef, they, they demanded I live on property. They didn't want me to live off, off property. And that's really neat, right? That you get to stay in a clubhouse, you get to... But here's the thing that's tough. Is that because you're on property, I can't just go down to the local grocery store in my shorts and my t-shirt and flip-flops. I have to always dress up to go somewhere. I always have to assume I'm going to be on stage. I always have to assume that I'm going to run into somebody. Even if I go to Key Largo and I go down to a local little restaurant down there and I walk in, I walk in and I see two or three members that are in there. So you're constantly on stage. Confidence is about projecting. Confidence is having belief in yourself and just being who you are. Let people see who you are. Let them see who you genuinely are. To do that, you have to kind of like yourself too. That helps, I guess, to, to do that. 
There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. I'm not going to go into that with you, but you understand the difference between that. Number nine, decisiveness. Resolving a tough choice by evaluating what, what, what will achieve the greatest good. This gentleman was a guest speaker at one of our conferences, uh, CMAA national conferences, a number of years ago. I like to take away one nugget from every presentation I go to. My takeaway from General Schwarzkopf was the something was this. You have to do something. You are paid to do something. You might not be right all the time, but people do not like people who don't do anything. It's okay to be wrong, just don't make the same mistake. But you have to make a decision. You have to go out and decide. You can get input. Uh, my, my senior staff have heard, I'm participative management leadership style. I like to get people to give input. I like to hear what people have to say. But don't underestimate the fact that I know I have to make a decision at the end of the day. And you have to make those decisions. And you have to make it, but what better way to make a decision, Ray, than having all the facts and all the opinions in there. So you have to be decisive. You're going to make right decisions, wrong decisions. How will you know if it's the right decision if you never make it? Number 10. Financial savvy. Again, going back to what Ray said. You know, this is not about, there are food and beverage experts, there are golf experts, there's a lot of different experts. But what we hear at CMA more and more is, do we have the financial acumen to run this business? And it's important because they, the board looks at you to be the one who is the financial person. Yes, you have a financial person that's helping you. But at the end of the day, you need to understand all the things that Ray was talking about. You need to understand all the little equations, all the different indices, all the things that we're talking about. You need to understand that. I remember sitting in, in this boardroom. We have two boards, one for the real estate company, one for the club. And I remember them telling me a story that one of the board members told me a story. They went into a board meeting and the person in charge, the GM or the CEO or whoever, started the meeting and didn't start with financials. And he never forgave the guy. He said, because there's nothing more important if you're the CEO to talk about the financial well-being of whatever the organization is. And then followed up with all the other good stuff. But he kind of held that against him. And I, you know, I, I, I won't forget that. Be financially independent. Spend less than you earn. Always remain employable. Be financially literate. These are all goals that just in a very quick search you're able to find. Number 11, fairness. Yeah, I heard again from uh, Jay, you had the golden rule and those that were there were the platinum rule. You know, the golden rule, how do you wish to be treated? And then the platinum rule that Jay came up with is, you know, how, how do others want to be treated? And that was, a, it was insight for me because again, you know, how would you want to be treated? You want to be treated courteously, but how you want to be treated, or you want to be treated, you want to be treated, might be different to the way I want to be treated. So, good lesson learned. Fairness, any of you remember this as uh, kids growing up? piece of pie, your mom says, you know, you cut, you choose. Guess what? Those two pieces of pie were equal. Freedom isn't as important as fairness. Who, does what's, who decides what's fair? Me. Twelve. Well, I left the best for last. And that is because in this industry, with the hours that we work and the things that we do, I will genuinely tell you, if you do not have a passion for this business, you need to get out of this business. You have to love what you do. The hours, the dedication, the time, the commitment, the things that we put into this job. You can't fake this job. You really cannot fake this. And this is for some people, but not for everybody. 
And I think if you get through the first five or six years, you're in good shape. You probably figured it all out. My wife last night, I was pulled. As you can imagine, you get pulled. You're talking to a lot of different people. At the end of the evening, I was standing at the cooking school counter talking to two or three people about something. She was off in the corner texting somebody, I think texting our son. And the people I was standing talking to said, oh, Dal, we apologize. She said, no problem. This happens all the time, you know? He, that's what he does. So it's understanding what this passion is. Allow your passion to become your purpose, and it will one day become your profession. And I love, I love that. I don't want to go into passion, but there's a lot of research on passion. You can uh, go in and have a look at it uh, yourself. So therefore, the characteristics of successful leaders in order, integrity, co communication skill, positive attitude, commitment, ability to inspire, forward thinking plus strategic thinking, common sense, confidence, decisiveness, financial savvy, fairness, and passion. There's two there, ladies and gentlemen, that are done in blue. The others are done in white. There's a reason there's only two in blue. Why is that? The two in blue are the only two you can learn to do. The rest are either there or they're not there. The two in blue, you can learn in a book to be a better communicator. You can learn how to do things better. It's there for you. Financial savvy, you can learn how to do, you take race course, you go in, you can learn how to do that. All of the others, they're either in you and you consciously think about them or they're not. Easy choice. You either have integrity or you don't. It's not gray. I love Jim James' story. All of you know Jim James, works at Augusta National, great friend of most of us, great friend of CMAA, uh, chairman of the Club Foundation now, super, super nice guy. When he employs people at uh, Augusta National, he has what, they, what he calls an honesty test. And in the honesty test, you, you are asked to rank your level of honesty from one to 10. A lot of people would put eight, nine. Man, I'm really honest. Nine and a half, wow, I'm really honest. If you don't put 10, you fail. So I only steal some of the time. I don't steal all of the time. Only some of the time. And I love that about Jim. That is a something that, that you, you either have or you don't have. All right, let's move through this. Now that we have the 12 success factors separating good from great leaders, what do we do? Here are a couple of things that I think you can do. Display a confident, positive attitude, thinking ahead and strategically, showing commitment and common sense, inspiring people at all levels by dealing honestly, fairly, and decisively, combining these traits with the ability to communicate and using sound financial principles, position you for the next level of leadership. And then finally, do it with passion. True leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. I'm not going to go into that slide, but it'll be in the handout when you get it. It's, uh, it's really, really a nice little piece about the things successful people do differently. So here's a different article that I wrote. And when I went through this transition here at Ocean Reef, I was trying to think about other people that go through transition and how they might react and what, what are the things that are important. And you know, we hear so much about work ethic. We hear so much about the amount of hours you've got to put in. We hear all of these different things. But at the end of the day, here's a couple of things I want to share with you. So these are my ideas of tips that will allow you to be successful. This is not in a book somewhere. This is just a little bit of from what I think. Share, infor share information. 
There's nothing worse than people that are working for you that don't have information, don't have information at their fingertips and aren't able to make decisions. They're working in vacuums. You have to communicate. I think that's the key, is sharing information. Just getting it out there. It doesn't matter who gets it. I mean, there's confidential information you're not going to share. But who cares who gets the information? The more people that know about the fact that Florida CMA chapter is coming down here to have a conference, the more people that know that and know that that's important, guess what? The more successful it is. Why would you not share information? I don't get that, but that's my point. Share. Say thanks, appreciation and recognition. One of the things I love doing, I do fist bumps. I love doing fist bumps. I love getting down and talking to the associates and others at this place. I love doing fist bumps with you guys. High fives, fist bumps, hugs, whatever it is. It's a way of saying thank you. It's a way of appreciating what others are doing. You, you, know, you can't underestimate how important it is, whatever your status in life is, to say thank you to somebody. I had somebody come into my office the other day, remain anonymous. And I thanked him publicly. And he came into me after everybody had left. It was 6.30 and I was still in the office. He, he, he made a point of leaving where he was, coming to my office and coming in and just thanking me. He said, I appreciate so much you giving me the recognition and the thanks in front of peers and others. Don't underestimate thank you. Empower through delegation. We all have smart people. Our big mantra here is best and brightest. I only want the best and brightest people, work selfishly, I only want the best and brightest people working with me. I want them to make me better. Selfishly, I want them to make me better. And I know if I go out and find the best and brightest people, it's going to help every one of our associates, it's going to help every one of our managers, and it's going to help me. Find good people. Adjust your style. You know, you can't manage everybody the same way. You have to have some fluidity. You have to have a different style. You have to adapt a different style as you go through this. You've got to react to what you see. And that's why in our job, I think we're more like chameleons than anything else. At Congressional, I had 16 chairmen in 16 years. Here we have one every two years. So every time a new chairman comes in, guess what happens? New person, new ideas, new thinking. You're barely getting them up to speed, getting them acclimated, getting them ready, and pssst, they change. Now somebody else comes in. We're chameleons, so adjust your style. Set more small milestones. Rome wasn't built in the day. You're not going to run a marathon tomorrow. I don't care how good you are, you're not, it's not going to happen. But if you set those milestones and you set your goals, it will happen. And when it happens one day, when one of you finish a marathon, please call me and let's celebrate together because it truly will be a celebration. You will run, have run the emotional gambit as you go through that experience. Have fun. Life is short. Enjoy what you do. I love what I do. I know the people that work with me love what they do. I truly, truly, truly love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do, and I think when you have that passion, life is fun. Are there regrets? Each and every one of us have regrets. I wish I'd spent more time with my kids growing up. I wish I'd been more involved in their sporting life. Uh, and in the list can go on, Matt and I, we talked about this at dinner the other night. You beat yourself up about that, but you don't. You just want to go on and enjoy what you have. Remove obstacles. At Ocean Reef, we talk about this a lot. My job is the chief obstacle remover at Ocean Reef Club. My job is to remove obstacles, remove friction points, so that our associates, our managers, our leaders can do what they need to do for our members. Think about yourself as that in that position. 
You are removing obstacles and friction points. Give feedback. Make teams productive. Feedback constantly, you know. I hate, I hope there's some people in here agree with me. I hate performance evaluations. I truly do. I hate them with a passion. I think they are so antiquated. They're so out of date. They are useless. Listen to me, people. Useless. The reason they're useless is because it's a snapshot. It tells me you're not talking to your people day in and day out. You're not talking to them on a constant dialogue. You're waiting, saving everything up, and then one day, every six months, you unload and you dump all of this stuff on them. Good or bad? Why wait? So Laura and I are looking at how do we reinvent. I saw this. Who was it? You sent me an article, Laura. Who was it that's re somebody, HP or Apple or somebody or Google, they think in the same way. They, it's, it's BS. We, the way we do it is antiquated. It's useless. Your, your people that work with you shouldn't have to get a performance evaluation. They should know day in and day out where they stand with you. They should know every single day exactly where they stand. Give feedback. Raise your hand to do more. No substitute for hard work. I tell my kids this. Somebody says, hey, uh, who, who wants to do this? Put, be the first one to put your hand up. Because people want and give work to people who want to do more work. You all know that, right? So if you're really busy and you've got a lot on your plate, you're moving in the right direction. If you don't have a lot of work on your plate, you should be thinking about it. Focus your time, the 80-20 rule. Um, it was funny, Ray mentioned that th there are a few people in clubs that, you know, the sort of silent minority or the dissidents. <laughs> I thought, man, Ray's been around for a while. <laughs> we all know that passionately. We all know what, what that is. But again, the 80-20 rule. Spend all of your time focusing on the things that are, are most important. And then Jay's, the golden rule, treat others, and then the platinum rule, you guys have seen that. Here's a slide I loved. It's, this has been going around Facebook for a while, the 10 things that require zero talent. Being on time, work ethic, effort, body language, energy, attitude, passion, being coachable, doing extra, being prepared. Not dissimilar list to what I just shared with you earlier on, outside of the financing. So as we wrap this up, I'm actually earlier Beth than normal, I think. I'm ahead of time. Um, the question is, Will you take action? When you leave today, will you start planning as you're driving back in your car? Will you start making mental notes? Will you do something? And then the question is, it's one thing making a plan, it's one thing writing it down, but there's no substitute for action. Will you put the running shoes on? Will you go for the one mile walk? Will you go for the five mile walk? Will you go for the five kilometer jog? Will you run the marathon? That, ladies and gentlemen, that choice is yours. So. On behalf of the entire team, which is standing behind there. I'm not going to deal, I'm not going to thank each of, the, each of them individually, but everybody that you see behind you, and some that are sitting within the, the, the spaces here has played a role in the success of this weekend. The success of this weekend will be judged by us as we get together at 1.30 today to have our weekly meeting and to look at that. But more importantly, the success of this weekend will be judged by each and every one of you and your enjoyment of your stay at o Ocean Reef. This is the team, this is the management team, this is the rest of the ones back there. 
My personal thanks to all of you for making this such a special weekend for my colleagues and for my CMAA members. I really appreciate it. You guys keep cruising. And if you need anything, that's the contact details for that. Guys, thanks for a great weekend. Enjoyed having you all here. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.